Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Arvin Hickman and welcome to the PR Weekly. In this episode, we're going to discuss England in the Euros and racism in sport, BBC Independence and Robbie Gibb, as well as what PR agencies are planning as Freedom Day approaches. Today, we are joined by Thread and Fable founder and former West Bromwich Albion press officer Rebecca Roberts, sports PR agency Calicus founder and former BBC broadcast journalist David Alexander, and Borkowski PR founder Mark Borkowski. Welcome to you all. Hi. Hi there. Let's kick off with the Euros and a hangover of racism directed at Rashford, Saka and Sancho, marring what has otherwise been an outstanding tournament and English campaign. Now, there's a lot to unpack here and we'll be discussing the racism issue in a moment. But to begin with, the English team led by Gareth Southgate, I feel has really enhanced the Three Lions brand and brought four weeks of joy and one night of heartbreak to the nation. Mark, surely this has been a really positive month for English football, aside from some of the ugly scenes at Wembley and the racism issue. It was a very positive month. I use the past tense because obviously we are now overshadowed by a set of events, both on and off the field, which um, perhaps has sort of killed off uh, what was remarkable positivity after, you know, very sad 18 months of us all being gripped by covid um, I'm I'm a boomer. I'm long enough to remember um, sort of following England for many, many years as a football fan. And of course, I'm embedded with the sort of gene that says that England will always fail. Um, and sometimes I think of the bad karma created by the England football fans as being part of the reason. I remember um, getting, well, I was on the tube heading home to watch the uh, the quarterfinal game against Germany, and I was greeted by a bevy of sort of uh, Neanderthals all clutching blow-up spitfires on the uh, on the tube line, sort of um, humming um, the uh, Dambusters theme. And mm-hmm. I thought, nothing changes, and it takes us right back to some of those um, ugly scenes we saw with violence, particularly with away supporters um, going off, not really to see the football, to have a damn good scrap. 
But I yeah. mean, we're seeing a greater professionalism now in the way. And I was very, very impressed with, you know, the, the, that handle Gareth Southgate had, not just on the team, but also on the media, which I thought was a first. I think it was the first time we got into a, a championship without facing some major PR scandal um, that has been, you know, um, uh, heralded by some action by a footballer on his way to the, to the tournament. It was, mm-hmm. a, it was a highly professional way of dealing with the media, keeping the team together, stripping all these club enmities. And it was great hope because expectations, I don't think, were particularly high, um, although England did get through, obviously, the semi-final of the World Cup. Um, but there was, they felt that there was a new beginning, new hope. And I'm afraid we've crashed down the snake after climbing a ladder right to ground zero again. I mean, it's a really good point that you raised there about the professionalism and, and the way that Southgate, and, and I also believe the players, handled the media. It definitely has a very different flavour and feel to it from previous English campaigns. Uh, David, what's really depressing about this ugly episode is that, you know, it's all too predictable. Can you give us a bit of context of, about racism in football in the past and, and where this sort of latest in incident places? Going back, uh, Mark was talking about the the history of, of English football fandom. And I think, you know, growing up as a young kid in the 70s and 80s, you know, I encountered quite a lot of racism, having a father from the Caribbean. And as we got into the 90s and the, the 2000s, things became more tolerant and more multicultural and more accepting. And it felt like we were in a really positive place societally. And I think that peaked around 2012, around the Olympic Games, because you had the diversity. Um, you know, it was no surprise that Danny Boyle would try and promote the NHS, um, given the potential threats that it might have faced. And everything sort of came crashing down after that, from a society perspective, in terms of the lead up and then the hangover from from Brexit and, and the stoking a division that... Uh, we've seen over the last few years and then has been highlighted over the last few weeks from the uh, the politicians that lead this country. And unfortunately, um, you know, politicians have been saying over and over again, you know, footballers should stick to football. They shouldn't get involved in, in politics when actually these footballers don't have anything to lose. They have uh, an opportunity to to use their platform in an elegant and uh, um, articulate way, and they're being authentic. They don't. They're not trying to do it to to gain fans, to gain clicks. They're doing it. You know, Marcus Rashford, for for instance. You know, he's had a lot of. Uh, criticism and yet he's forced the government into two u-turns because he's doing something for the greater good and it's very hard even for politicians to to turn around and criticize him when what he's basically saying is i just don't want kids to go hungry yeah i mean it's a really interesting point that you raise about the players being authentic and and you know they're they're raising issues using their platforms and social media issues that are really important to them. Rebecca, you wrote an excellent piece um, on PR Week about politicians' role in all of this. Uh, you cited Tyrone Ming's post about Priti Patel and taking the knee. Uh, you also mentioned that it was a missed opportunity for Downing Street uh, after after the final. Can you elaborate on what you mean by this? Yeah, so um, obviously we had um, much speculated talk of a bank holiday um, that may happen if we should win. And there's also discussion about some sort of um, reception that would be held at number 10. And obviously this is always a PR moment. We've seen England cricketers and we've seen obviously 2012 
we had the, the bus tour through London. And obviously the FA have come out and said, well, we already decided that if we lost that we, that wouldn't be appropriate and we'd kind of declined it. But there is a lot of speculation like who would decline that? Would the footballers or would number 10 now feel that this is slightly uncomfortable? It's interesting, the, Ty- uh, the Tyrone Mings um, tweet, because, you know, it was labelled last night on Newsnight as, you know, a cue accusation of Pretty Patel sort of stoking the fire. But it, it was really setting out quite clearly, in fact, that you can't call an, an act of anti-racism one thing when you've actually not supported um, them from the start and sort of said to fans, well, actually, if you boo it, we're not, we're not going to condemn you for it. So he sort of set out very clearly his view. And I think they've almost held up a mirror to what anti-racism looks like to the government. And I think that becomes an uncomfortable truth for them. And I would wager a bet that the players would actually have wanted to use the opportunity to talk about, you know, stuff like the, you know, the online bill, what more can be done. There's some very real issues that could have been demonstrated. Um, A spokesman came out on Monday, I think it was, to say that Johnson would be okay with them taking a knee at number 10, as if that's some sort of gracious kind of moment. And obviously today, just in the Commons a little earlier, he said that, you know, any any racists online, giving players online abuse, you know, will not get to watch the football, no ifs or buts. They won't get to watch live sport. But how they actually do that in practice and when this online bill, online safety bill will come into action um, is anyone's guess right now. It is, isn't it, Mark? And it's really interesting how politicians, some, some politicians, not all of course, have been sort of fanning the flames um, about taking the knee, that sort of stuff, uh, and really setting it up. And, and now they're coming out and, and trying to pr- promote an anti-racist message. Uh, quite confusing. Well, what do you think can be done about this? I mean, we, we, I guess we've discussed this many times before in terms of what social media companies can do. But what more do you think can be done to help tackle um, hate online and, and to stop these plays being racially abused? Look, there's, there's one way. I mean, when we look at the huge technology leaps that we make, um, and the huge positivity that supposedly was going to come with social media, we're beginning to see just it's just a tool and for a large majority of people to be abusive. Nothing came home. Um, football didn't come home. What came home was sort of racist abuse. That's what that's what we saw um, on, on on Monday morning. And I think that we're going to have to get tough on the likes of the social media channels, the likes of some Facebook, Instagram, and of course, Twitter. And if there's a commercial paradigm that these social channels have to protect, they're on top of deleting um, um, row copy very quickly. No sooner has someone streamed some um, rogue pirate football stream, it's down in, in minutes. And let's not, let's not sit on the fence about this. They should and they could be doing more. The combined efforts of TV channels like ITV and Sky getting together, you know, the, the weekend of avoiding it, until there is some tough regulation, until we can actually go and go and search out these people who anonymously hide behind their troll-like persona, nothing will change because we've, we've made huge strides in trying to give, you know, this a positive voice. And I'm absolutely sickened that we're still d- debating it in, in, in such an evil way. We're going so far back. And until we get some, you know, real teeth into the neck of these, uh, of these internet companies, ever, ever going to be the same. There was a million people supposedly signing, according to the sun, at 10 o'clock in the morning, a million people signing petitions. That's a tiny number compared to how many people Mm. watch the game. A million people is not enough to show the absolute anger 
of what we're seeing because it's the same old, same old. I want to get your views as well, David and Rebecca. David, let's start off with you. What more do you think needs to be done to tackle this issue? There's been some debate about whether or not there should be some sort of uh, two-stage identification process for social media channels, but um, many, many uh, people who have worked within those social media platforms have said that, you know, doing that then weakens the position of those in in perhaps more tyrannical and uh, um, less tolerant countries who may actually be trying to use their voice in a way where they don't, um, being identified could be a risk to their lives. But I agree with Mark, you know, there, there does need to be more done. You know, I, I see numerous people who make very legitimate observations on Twitter, for instance, and then they disappear and then they say, oh, I've just been banned for two weeks. And yet people who who, uh, who work for estate agents and such like who claim that their phones have been hacked or lost straight after the game when they've been sharing obscene uh, racist abuse don't seem to, to suffer the same fate. I think it's it's very difficult to to see how and what with the the power and influence that these social media channels have you know they've taken over to some degree from the the big multimedia conglomerates run by the Murdochs of this world that used to have the the influence to shape opinion and and votes and and uh, and governments mm. Rebecca what about you um, yeah, I agree with um, both Mark and David. Like on the on the one hand, you you would sort of point to government to say you can't have this me- mixed message where we're going to say we're not going to condemn you for booing. However, we will we will get really cross and sort of call you out if you put give us a paper trail and make number ten look bad. So the consistency is needed there on in terms of anti racism. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When it comes to social media, it's an interesting one. I've spoken to a number of journalists at quite a lot of female sports journalists actually who have absolutely abhorrent um threats all the time particularly when they're commenting on men's sport and you know we've had i've had, spoke to florence Lloyd, um hughes who's had like death threats on her sort of football punditry and she's like this is ridiculous you know we, we've taken it to the police and they're sort of not taking it massively seriously and I think the reporting side is really an issue here because, um, as mm. as David just said, you know, I've seen quite a lot of people who've actually been reporting issues. However, Instagram, for example, were sort of rejecting that something was racist and then actually shadow blocking several accounts as well of people who were reporting the issue. Um, and, and like Mark alluded to, 
yeah, if you if you shared a clip of a bit of uh, broadcast coverage that you weren't meant to, or a piece of music you don't have rights to, they're very quick to act on that. So it's not like the technology isn't there. And I think that's where this online safety bill, real pressure have to, has to come with real consequences for these companies to actually demonstrate they are able to do something. Or I just think we're going to have this rumbling on for the foreseeable future. Yeah, unfortunately so. It's quite depressing, isn't it? Well, I just hope that, you know, in years to come, it's England's football that we remember and, and how they brought the nation together, albeit fleetingly. Um, but anyway, I want to move on to our next topic, which is the other major media story of the week. The Financial Times recently reported that Robbie Gibb, who spent most of his career at the BBC before becoming a communications director for Theresa May, attempted to stop former HuffPost UK editor and deputy Newsnight editor Jess Brammer from being appointed to a key editorial role. Mark, what is your take on this and what does it mean for the BBC's independence? I have a huge amount of sympathy um, for Corton Davy, um, who's inherited a frothing, steaming, poison chalice. It's always been about um, ownership. And uh, I've worked with the BBC um, many, many years ago as a, as a, as a young communicator. And uh, there were some pretty uh, forthright you know, head of comms at the BBC who, who really um, defended the impartiality of the BBC with some venom. That was weakened as we went down through the years, particularly through John Burt's time, when, you know, there, there wasn't the same aggressive tactics to, 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 to watch it. And, you know, to a certain extent, I think the BBC always considers the Daily Mail factor. Uh, what does the Daily Mail think about that? There's no strength of position. The BBC are at its weakest now. And uh, the impartiality has always been the great ground that people um, describe, you know. Uh, the BBC is struggling um, to make sense of itself in an, in an age of... Netflix and Apple and the huge amount of competition for audiences. And of course, the up and coming license fee debate will roll on. Uh, we see um, a lot of influence from politicians in terms of um, perhaps defunding the BBC, perhaps trying to run it. So there's huge amount of consternation. I don't know how far away from W1A it is, but at times, one one thinks it isn't that far away from it being a satirical um, point of reference. But it's it's come up with, you know, what is the BBC going to be and stand for? Because, you know, uh, the audience looks at the way that it's trying to address and diversity, address um, what its shape and form should be in the 22nd century, let alone the 21st century. Uh, and it struggles. As a state broadcaster, mm. it is struggling. There is a soft underbelly. It's a perception that, they're, that they do indulge in cronyism. And there's, there is a minor soft, soft subplot there. They're using tactics to turn the BBC into a propaganda service. So, um, you know, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. And I think with all this um, constitutional issues surrounding the BBC, it's very difficult to modernise and strike a brand that actually means something. It's in a really difficult position, isn't it, Rebecca? And I know with with some of the BBC's reporting um, in in particular, there are always accusations that it isn't impartial from both the left and the right. What do you think this latest scandal does for the BBC? I think we saw over Brexit real challenge over how much airtime they were showing to the likes of Farage, for example, and that really stimulated 
myself, you know, to question like, well, what news outlet would I want to watch? But this whole um, Robbie Gibbs scenario isn't new. I mean, just two months ago, um, there was a decision vetoed by ministers not to renew boardroom positions of Uzma Hassan and Fru Hazlitt at Channel 4 against the advice of Channel 4 board and Ofcom. And both were replaced with Conservative allies leading to leading media roles. So what we're seeing is, yes, the BBC are kind of shown as having problems, but I kind of think that fuels the ideal kind of privatisation that perhaps the Conservative Party would want to go for and, and sort of breaking down of the BBC in some way because they're doing it elsewhere. What, what's your take on this, David? Well, um, I have to hold my hands up. I was a broadcast journalist for the BBC for about three years and very proud to have been there. Um, the uh, the brilliance of some of the editors on the programmes on, on uh, Radio 5 that I worked with was uh, something to behold. And um, they uh, there was a real fight, obviously, you know, on t- to try and ensure impartiality. And of course, as as uh, others have said, you know, there's always that uh, risk that you can you can be damned if you do, damned if you don't, as far as how you interpret a story. But I've also lived abroad. Um, Arvind, you've, you've lived abroad. You know, the, the BBC has been revered as, as one of the major um, broadcast news organisations around the world. But I think, you know, those journalists that I still know that work at the BBC um, have certainly felt that they have been... Uh, stifled somewhat by the the fear of more regulation the inevitable cuts that have gone across the uh, broadcasting and, and wider journalism world it's always going to be a challenge to make sure that you you have that balance between impartiality and also um, with a government like the, the that that we have at the moment where you have to ensure that uh, you're not creating too much outrage which is going to to create the the concerns as you've mentioned to do with things like the uh, the license fee i think it's it's ironic that uh, um jacob reese morg yesterday i think it was was complaining about the fact that uh, there's never anyone from tory central office that gets considered for some of the major news roles or uh, um managerial roles at the bbc um, mark mentioned tim davy who was chairman of the hammersmith and fulham conservative party for and uh, a tory councillor candidate in the past the narrative is is divisive again um i think the bbc has got to find its role and its voice and uh, and whether or not it's going to be able to do that remains to be seen it's a really interesting point isn't it and i find it quite amusing coming from australia where we have the abc and the exact same tactics the exact same attacks from the from the right side of, of politics uh, target them as well right and finally so-called freedom day is fast approaching when all covid restrictions in the uk or at least in, in england will be abolished um, i'd like to hear from each of you how you are preparing your agencies for freedom day uh, what clients are saying um, and you know, how you're preparing your teams to return to the office and all that sort of stuff. Rebecca, let's start off with you and your plans for Thread and Fable. So I work with a lot of other independents, so on collaborative projects, so I won't necessarily need an office space suddenly. What I am hearing from clients is they are doing a much more slow return to normal. Um, There is a lot of challenge, I guess, from, you know, They've put all these policies in place, HR departments to protect people, rotation of office teams. And a lot of them are now speaking to staff about how they they can't just suddenly drop things in their view. So I think that whilst the restrictions may come off, I don't for some people I'm speaking to aren't suddenly dropping everything. It's a good point, isn't it, David, about how the government will have its guidance, but actually it'll be up to individual businesses, won't it, to manage the safety of their own staff? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, similarly to to Rebecca, you know, my team is is spread around 
the country and, and a lot of our clients are international. So actually, a lot of what we do won't change. I think, uh, you know, some of the, the weekly face-to-face meetings will return slowly but surely, but some of the huge companies that we work with, they're going to be very slow going back to the office. In fact, some of them have said they're not really going to get to anything like full speed as far as office attendance is concerned until the start of 2022. I think what will be um, good from an an agency perspective will be just that that opportunity to meet people face to face again, you know, just the the general networking and and, um, discussions and, and industry conferences and such like that that just haven't been taking place i'm looking forward to things getting a little bit back to normal i have to say i've been into london a couple of times over the last uh, six months or so and and it's a very different place to to how it was 18 months ago or so absolutely mark what's happening at borkowski um how are you planning for freedom day and and gradually returning to normal with your team we spent quite a bit of money uh making our offices um you know, safe for people to work in. Um, there was a number of people, younger people in my organisation, who found it incredibly difficult to work at home, um, simply because of their, 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 the way they lived in small, in small flats. I employed uh, two or three people um, in the COVID, of which I, I didn't really meet them until about this time last year, which was very odd. Our, our office is, uh, has been open for business and people have been coming back for some time now. A lot of people do want to be back in the office. There are certain people who prefer to working from home and I've left it to individuals to make that choice. I'm not pushing anybody to come back into office environment. Um, but I was in last week, I'm, I'm in about two days a week now, and I was stunned to see that we had you know, quite a lot of people back in the office because they wanted to be back in the office. Um, as far as clients, I think some people are very happy with uh, Zoom connections and virtual connections. Other people are not. People want face-to-face meetings. They've been very few and far between for obvious reasons. But in terms of the collaborative process that we go through um, as a working environment, some of the stuff we've been doing has been extraordinary because we've been back together again. I think that um, we're not really going to see the shape of this, in my estimation. I don't really buy totally into this this awfully termed Freedom Day. I think that uh, we're really not going to see the back end of this until we get through another what is deemed as a flu season or COVID season. Maybe spring, summer next year, we'll know the real shape of things. Indeed. Sounds like we are definitely not out of the woods and there is still some uncertainty ahead. But hopefully with things opening up, um, it'll be a little bit more positive and town centres like London can get back to being the vibrant, wonderful cities they are. That is all we have time for. Thank you very much to Rebecca, David and Mark for joining us and to our producer, Lindsay Riley from Rethink Audio for putting this episode together. If you want to read out more about what we've discussed today and the latest industry news and views, please visit our new look website, prweek.com. Thank you for listening. I'm Arvind Hickman. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.